We are in a journey through the book of Nehemiah. We started uh, last week as we're going to walk through the fall. Some studies out of the book of Nehemiah. Last week we looked at chapter 1. This week we are in chapter 2 in the first eight verses. Taking a look at Nehemiah's prayerful dependence upon God. And uh, hopefully seeing in his life things that we want to see sparked in our own hearts. In Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1, hear the word of God. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why? Is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but a sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, What are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen was sitting next to him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And when I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of God was upon me. Pray with me. Oh, Father in heaven, we long to see your good hand upon us. Father, we long to see you at work in our midst. We long to see you granting us favor in the eyes of those who have the power to bless your church and to move us forward and to advance your kingdom and purposes among us. And so, Father, even now as we look at Nehemiah and some of these stories in the midst of his life and the ways that you used him, the ways that you worked among your people. Father, would you open our hearts and our minds to what it looks like to walk with you, to know you and to love you in such a way that we would find ourselves useful instruments in your hands. For we ask and we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. It is one of the great mistakes that I make in my Christian life and that I think that uh, many of us often make when we are self-dependent and self-reliant. When we just do what needs to be done and that we do it ourselves and we do it in our own strength. And sometimes our self-dependence and our self-reliance is revealed in a prayerlessness. And that we go about our business without praying about our business. That we handle our troubles without praying about our troubles. That we deal with our conflicts without seeking God in the midst of our conflict. That we do life thinking we can handle it. We can handle the problems or the challenges or the opportunities that are before us or our marriages or even our parenting. And we handle all of these things going about our business, whatever is in front of us, 
ultimately trusting in ourselves. And we, we reveal our self-trust and our self-dependence and our self-reliance on our, through our prayerlessness. By not really seeking and asking and inviting God to be at work in us and through us and in these circumstances. And so we make our own decisions. Rarely feeling the need. Seeking God's enabling grace. Seeking His presence and His power. You and I believe Jesus when He says, I mean at least we would if I had went around and took a poll, that you believe Jesus when He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. Would anybody check? No. Of course we will. We believe Jesus. But the reality is so many of the things that we say we believe and acknowledge intellectually, we tend to live as if we didn't. We tend to live as if we think we can do a whole lot apart from Jesus. And we don't really need Him to handle most of this stuff. You know, I've got it. I think Nehemiah has a lot to teach us about walking with God. What it means and what it looks like to depend on Him and depend on Him through prayer. In chapter 1, verse 11, the verse just before where I started reading, the last verse of chapter 1, it says this, we, we saw Nehemiah get confronted with a crisis and he, and he heard about something. We saw him drop to his knees and to weep and to pray and to fast and to begin to seek God. He records some of his prayer for us. And the last, verse, last lines of his prayer are this, O Lord, O Yahweh, O covenant God, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your, all of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy, favor in the sight or in the eyes of this man. It's a beautiful prayer. And it's a prayer that encompasses him when he says, you know, to, to, to hear my prayer, the prayer of your servant, and all the prayers who delight, prayers who delight to fear your name. All of those who honor your name and reverence your name. And he says, and this is who he is. This is who Nehemiah is. He, he shows it in his, the fact that he prays, the way that he prays, what he prays for, his attitude when, his pray, when he prays, his heart when he prays. He is a man who delights to fear, to honor, to reverence God's name. Part of the way he does it is by kneeling before him, believing that he can't do anything apart from him. That he needs God to grant him mercy and favor in the sight of this man. We're told at the end of verse 11 then that he says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. This is my position. Um, cupbearer is an interesting job. It's not a job you can usually get these days. Put your resume together. I'm going to be cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer is an interesting job. You had to have a king, first of all. And second of all, this is the guy who, um, who serves the wine. And he says that. You know, but he also is the guy who tests the wine, but not just the wine, it's, it's the food. It's everything that gets served to the king. It's the job of the cupbearer of the king to have tasted and tested that beforehand and to assure that the king's safety. But he's also not like the stopgap guy. He's not like, you know, he comes out of the kitchen and he's like, oh, here's some food and I'll take a little bite and make sure. It's not like that. His job is to follow the food from its its procurement and its purchase and bringing it into the kitchen to oversee its preparation to... He doesn't want to die either. 
Right? He's in charge then of the quality and the safety of the food, bringing it in all the way to the moment it's served to the king, where he guarantees its safety, but he also tests it in the sight of the king to demonstrate its safety. And so here is a guy, who's, it's an important job, but it's, it's a high-risk job if somewhere along the way you fail <laughs> to catch, catch the guy. Uh, it's a high-risk job to make sure the king doesn't get poisoned by being poisoned yourself first. But it's a job that, uh, that accrues a certain amount of power to it because he oversees the purchasing and the procurement and the preparation and the bringing in, in there. So he, he has a certain amount of, if not power, influence in, the, in it and a certain amount of trust with the king. The two of us together don't really want to die. Um, but he also is in the king's presence quite a bit. Silent probably, but there. He's a slave. Essentially a high class slave. But he's a slave. Part of an enslaved minority population. Jews and others who were brought from the conquered kingdoms and dragged into exile in Assyria and Babylon and now owned by Persia. And they have this slave minority population. Many of them rose to places of prominence. Daniel and his friends, Esther, Nehemiah. It's, it, is a, it is a high class slave, but in a somewhat prominent position. But he is serving as conqueror. So we have this guy, Nehemiah. He is cupbearer to the king. He is a fearer, of, a reverencer of God's name. He is a true believer. He's a slave, a servant, but he's also a bold man. He's a glorified slave. So his request to the king is, humanly speaking, going to be impossible. Right? We see what he asks for in the midst of this. And, and at, in the position that he is, he is not, I've read some of the commentators that think, well, maybe he's a counselor to the king or he does this. He, he is not. He does not have the king's ear. He doesn't speak to the king unless the king speaks to him. To speak for him to step out of line in that way is a very dangerous thing. It's another reason to be in the king's presence is always dangerous if you misstep. So he does not speak unless he is spoken to. He's very careful about what he says. We see this in Esther when she approaches the king, even after she married him. She's very careful in the way that she waits and allows that conversation to take place. So it was almost an impossible thing if he is a servant, this, this part of this population, to ask for vacation, so to speak. Right? And that's what he wants. He wants some vacation time. He wants to go and do something else. You replace me. Cover my duties while I'm gone. Give me the opportunity to go do something else. It has nothing to do with you, really your kingdom, or, or benefits you. Let me go and do something else. Nehemiah has been praying about it. He's been fasting about it. He's been seeking God and pleading with God about it. And when the door opens, when the king asks him about his countenance, which is also a dangerous thing. And you follow this through history. This is, you know, in, in B.C., but you follow it up to the kings and the monarchs of England where you, did, you were not sad in, in, in the presence of your monarch. You know, and, and they would go before him and clear the way of anybody that wasn't come, you know, you, know, you, you just didn't. So that's why when it says that the king noticed and he asked him, I notice that you're sad. I don't think you're sick. What's your problem? And it says, right, he was very afraid. 
think it's verse 3, I said to the, um, the sadness of heart, and just before verse 3 he says, and then I was very much afraid. The king spoke to him, calling him out on his sadness, and he said, I was afraid. This, I am on a risky piece of ground right here. He is afraid, but he's been praying. He's been praying for an opportunity. He's been praying that the king would, would, he would have an opportunity to make this request. And so when the king asks him, he takes the opening as the opening of divine providence and he throws caution to the wind and he steps through, very afraid, but he asks. At the risk of his own well-being. He has no reason to believe the king is going to grant him anything. Especially this. Of all the things he might have asked. But God had opened the door. He steps through and he asks for the moon. Right? Doesn't he? He doesn't just ask, you know, I want to go and rebuild you know, Jerusalem. I want to go and, and restore it to its health. And as soon as the king says yes to that, he asks for more. Ah, can you give me some letters, you know, to help my travel pass easier? And he gets that, and then he asks, can I have some more letters? Would you provide all the resources for my crazy endeavor? He asks for the moon. And the king grants it. He was bold. He stepped out. He was sacrificing, self-sacrificing, because he knows, even though he's a, he's a high-class Slave, he's a slave, he is a high-class slave. He lives in the palace, right? He has a lavish and comfortable life in the lap of luxury, in the, in the, in the home of the most powerful man on earth. To be his slave isn't a bad gig in a, in a, in a, in a, in a culture where there are haves and have-nots. So he lives a good life. He lives in the palace. He has fine clothes and fine living conditions. He has a prominent position. He has a little bit of power and influence. He's literally sipping wine out of a golden goblet. He's got it going pretty well. How easy it is for us to get comfortable. In many ways, we have everything that he had as Americans. Are very comfortable sipping wine from golden goblet, so to speak, as compared to the rest of the world. We have so much. And it would be very easy, it is so easy to hang into that and to live into that and for that to, to stay comfortable in that and not risk anything. To not step out. Why travel to the far side of the world on this kind of a risky journey? We've got five people in Uganda right now. And what does it cost for them to be there? For J.D., when he doesn't work, he gives up income. Right? He is an, he's an eye surgeon. Every surgery he does, every appointment he makes, everything he does, and when he takes weeks upon weeks to go, if he were here, he would probably slap me around. But here's a man who takes off months at a time out of his business, giving, not only giving up income, but paying his way to go and to fix Blind people in the reach. Have you been reading the updates? I don't know if those have been get, making it out to you. They're seeing people come to Christ every day. The risk, the, the self-sacrifice, to step out of the... How comfortable, how easy it is. You know, we hear about the... How, you know, and we say, oh, that's terrible. And, you know, and we will pray about it, but we feel bad, but not bad enough to actually do anything. We're busy and we're... Comfortable. And Nehemiah challenges us. When he sees the need and he hears God's call and he hears it for himself. Nehemiah says, here am I. 
Send me. This is no small project this man took on. This was not a, a cakewalk. And as we read through this story, uh, it was hard slogging away, along the way. He signed up for it. He gave up the lap of luxury to go do that. Because it was about God's kingdom. It was about God's people. It was about God's purposes. At great cost to Himself, He steps forward. What keeps us from being available to be used by God? Whether it is in stepping up on the trips that we take overseas or stepping up on ministry here within the church, whether it's from an email that crosses your desk offering an opportunity to serve all the way up to saying, yes, I'll go to Acapulco or Uganda or some other part of the world. What is it that keeps us from being available? Used by God. He didn't use his position and his comfort and his busyness as an excuse to, to do nothing. He could very easily say, I've got an important job. This is my income. This is my livelihood. This is what I do. It's, it's, if I step away from it, maybe I won't get my job back. I mean, there's a thousand reasons he could say, that's too bad. I wish somebody would do something about it. But instead of using his position as an excuse, he actually leverages his position, what God has given him and provided to him. He actually leverages it to accomplish God's kingdom purposes. He risks, he risks it all in a sense to, to do and to follow and to serve what God is doing. To step out. God uses men and women in every kind of position. You read through the Bible. and I mean, He uses everybody from the lowest to the highest in the craziest and most diverse places and positions. But he, what He does is He uses people who boldly make themselves available. Available. We see that this available heart, you know, I want to be available. I want to be available to God. I want to, I want to step out. I want to take risk. I want to, I, want to, I want to live a life protecting myself and my stuff and my comfort. I want to be bold and self-sacrificing. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. So how, how do we live that life? And I think that it is the, the way his life is saturated in, in prayer in a prayerful dependence upon God, that he walks with God. And so he has God's vision for things and his desire, and so he's, he is responsive to God when God calls and he answers. comes from a relationship with God. And the king asks Nehemiah what he wants. It's a revealing question. If we were to put it to us again, I think it's a question we need to keep asking ourselves. What do you want? When you get to the end of your life, what, what do you want to have been your life? What do you want to have done or accomplished? What do you want when you stand before that day? What do you want? And all of us are pursuing something. We're pursuing what? We're pursuing what we want. What we really want. Not what we say we want. What we really want. The most powerful man in the world asks you, what do you want? And he says, I pray, the next two phrases I believe are at the core of the Christian life. The core of any life with God. And it's something that for me, continuing to cultivate and to pursue. It's this dynamic. Because what, ha what does he say in those next two phrases? He says, let the king live forever. Right, where am I? Let me find myself. Verse 4. 
He says, and the king said to me, what is it you are asking? What are you requesting? And there nukes two phrases. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king. Right? You see how those are juxtaposed? I, I think that juxtaposition ought to be your whole life. Right? That juxtaposition. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I asked the king. I took risk. I stepped out. I threw caution to the wind and I said, I, I asked for the moon. Right? I, I prayed and then I responded. First of all, many of us need perhaps a God-centered pause before we speak. Uh, it would do many of us good when we hear what we don't like or we hear something, whatever. We hear all kinds of stuff. It would do very well for us if we prayed to the God of heaven and then we spoke. It would save us a lot of grief. Maybe douse some of our anger and defensiveness and help us in so many ways to pause before we speak and pray to the God of heaven first. Help me. Right? We notice when this earthly, powerful, pagan king asks him what he wants, he doesn't answer until he has spoken to the king of kings. Until he has spoken to the God of heaven. He doesn't even answer this king, this most powerful man, literally the most powerful man on the planet. He pauses to ask of God. This dynamic between chapter 1 and 2, because in chapter 1 we see a focused fasting and praying that lasted months. Because we see in the opening of this, it says in the month of Chislev. And then in the opening of chapter 2, it says the month of Nisan. That's almost four months later. So there is this time of fasting and praying and seeking God in this intervening time, waiting for God to open a door. You know, this dynamic between that kind of praying and waiting and this kind of bold praying when the door opens us, a God-awareness, a spontaneous, heartfelt seeking of God in the moment. So this door opens and I pray to the God of heaven. And then I step into it. He was prepared for this moment. I think that's part of my problem so often. Get an opportunity maybe to share your faith. You get an opportunity to do this. You get so many things in the life, in the lives of ministry and in our lives. And I think we're not always prepared for those moments. And sometimes I look back and I said, I wish I was prepared. I wish I had said the right thing at that right time. And I believe that here is that picture of preparedness. It's that four months of chapter one of praying and fasting and seeking. So when the moment arises, there is that God-awareness, God-consciousness, that heartfelt seeking of God of responding to Him in the moment. Heart that is tuned. A heart that is ready. A heart that is sensitive and responsive. A heart that is looking for the opportunity to respond to God. He pauses to depend on God. In this moment, it's a habitual, conscious God dependence. And I believe that is what drives the Christian life. A habitual, conscious God dependence. So in these critical moments of life, it's about relationship with God. I think it's what Jesus means when He says that apart from Me, you can do nothing. right? And if you abide in Me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. I think that's what we have an illustration here. We say, I say so often, what does it look like to abide in Jesus? I'll do that because I want to bear much fruit. 
Well, I think we see it in this guy's life. It, it, it means abiding in Him in our times of alone and week by week and month by month as we pray and fast and seek and ask God His direction. And it is the moment by moment at work when your boss says something where I pray to the God of heaven and then I respond. Or that moment when that door opens and you pray to the God of heaven and you speak. Or that moment of conflict in your marriage where something has been said and then before I respond, I pray to the God of heaven. Help me respond well. Help me respond right and godly. Help me to do this right. Is when you're sitting down to give counsel to somebody who's seeking it from you and you pray to the God of heaven and ask for His wisdom before you speak to them. It's, it's when you're trying to deal with your kids and they're, they're being crazy and they're not doing what you want them to do. And then before just lashing out, we pray to the God of heaven for the grace and the strength and the patience to love them and discipline them well and to do it right. You know, it's that moment by moment dependence apart from which we can't do it right. We can't do anything, Jesus says. Spiritual. To love and raise my children, to love and respond to my spouse, and to love and, and, and work for my employer, and to respond, or to work with my employees, or to every interaction and place where we should be living in conscious, habitual dependence upon God. I pray to the God of heaven for that wisdom, that strength, that grace. Here we would call it. I think it's what Paul means in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when he says, pray without ceasing. We say, I can't pray without ceasing. And, I, and so we think of it, you know, and we think, well, that's praying and never stopping. Well, I can't do that. I've got to talk to other people. <laughs> I can't do that. I've got to do my work. I can't do that. I gotta... When he says pray without ceasing, I don't think he means literally you never stop unless in some God-conscious posture that you go through life in which I do think is possible at some level. But I think what he means is pray about everything all the time. So when you go about your work, you say, God, help me to do my work is not unto men, but unto you. You know, that as I do talk to people and go deal with conflict or have those conversations or deal with my children or deal with my husband or deal with those things, and, you know, in everything that we do, that we are, we are pausing and praying to the God of heaven to fill us with His Spirit and to enable us to be His people in those moments. To walk with God, to pray without ceasing, to abide in Christ. Some have called this kind of praying that, um, you know, I said, I, I prayed and I said. You know, that's a quick prayer. Right? Yeah, that's what there's some have called an arrow prayer. You know, you shoot it up to heaven in a moment. It's like, Phew! you know, because I got I, you know, to answer the king. I got to have this conversation. Arrow prayers, they're, they're shot up to heaven in a moment, they're, but they're so awesome. They're brief. There's no need to be lengthy. Jesus says we are not heard for our many words. You know, we don't have to babble on like the pagans. You know, there is clearly a brief prayer, simple, short, probably not very eloquent. Oh my God, here it is. Help me say the right words. You know, oh Lord, I need wisdom. I, I don't know how I'm going to answer this. You know, whatever it is, it's that silent, Artaxerxes, I don't think, knew he was praying. It's an inward cry of the heart. It's a reaching out to God in the moment to do that thing in the moment right, well, pleasing to Him. It's convenient. It can be done anytime. It can be done anywhere. It can be done at the drop of a hat. It can be done without interrupting your normal activities. You can do it. It's... Brief and silent, convenient, it's intense. It's in the most intense moments of your life. I'm under temptation. 
I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I ran. You know, or I prayed to the God of heaven and said, no. You know, I prayed to the God of heaven in the moment of temptation, in the moment where an important conversation is about to take place, or I've got to make a decision, or there's a crisis that arises in front of you. You know, you name it, they're intense. God, I need you. God, speak to me. Use me. God, strengthen me. Give me patience. God, you know, they're quick, but they're, they're some of the most real prayers you might ever pray. They're necessary because they're all we can manage at that moment. But we so need to ask God's help at that moment. No time to call a prayer meeting. I'll be back, King Artaxerxes. I'm going to have to call my peeps and we're going to have to... No. Pray to the God of heaven. They are necessary. There's no time for something else. They're relational. You are abiding in Christ. You are living in communion with God. You are talking to Him about everything. You are trusting Him. You're depending on Him. You're crying out to Him. You are needing Him. You are, you are with Him. It is a conscious, habitual dependence upon God. It's brief and silent, convenient and intense and necessary and relational and it's sustaining because it keeps our hearts oriented and in tune. It keeps water in the well of our days, of our striving. It is possible to walk with God. It is possible to live in constant dependence upon Him. Some of the spiritual forebears would call it practicing the presence of God. And what that means is, is practicing as a matter of practice. Meaning to make something habitual means you've got to, you know... To play the piano like it was just played. It doesn't happen in a moment. You practice that ability. And so we practice being aware of God's presence. We practice reaching out to Him. We practice just taking a deep breath and realizing God is here. God is with me. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. God strengthen me. It is something we practice and we pursue in life. And I think it's not something that you master in the moment. It's something that you master in those more focused times. And I really love and believe in that dynamic. You know, I have a quiet time in the morning where I open the Word and I read and I pray and I seek God and I, I tune my heart. I ready my heart for the day and for whatever is there. You know, to be His man and to apply His Word. And as I go into my day, then I am tuned and ready for the moments. Those moments aren't the first time I've become aware of God in that day. Right? We learn to walk with Him. A man or a woman who walks with God. In prayer. And it's simple. This isn't a... A straining duty that would, you know, it's more a habit of the heart to maintain a living awareness of God, of our need for Him, of our dependence upon Him all the time in everything. Spurgeon said, if I see sparks coming out of a chimney, I know there's a fire inside somewhere. And our prayers, like the sparks that fly from a soul that is filled with burning coals of love to Jesus Christ, where there's fire you see those sparks and he's saying these this kind of praying are the sparks of a soul in which there has been fanned into glowing coals and flames that dependence upon God in Christ and so prayerful dependence does not mean passivity I would say this quickly that it does not mean passivity we see we see that he weeps and he prays and he fasts and then he says and I hope you know you know but it's too bad I hope somebody does something about it Right? You, don't, you don't see him using prayer and that kind of thing as an excuse to passivity. Right? He uses prayer to tune his heart and as a preparation for faithful action. 
that if God should open that door, He's going to step through it. I'm ready. Right? It's preparation, not something we do instead. We're ready to step out in risky, costly pursuit of our own prayers. Right? What are you praying for? That God might do or ways that He might use you. When that door opens, you're ready. Because you've thought about it and prayed about it and you've tuned your heart to it. And when the door opens, you pray to the God of heaven and you say, yes, use me. He uses every legitimate means at His disposal. He asks permission of the king. He accepts government backing. And pro- you know, I'm thinking about this, and you know that as we go through Nehemiah, we're thinking about, I, all right, I'm thinking about and trying to get you to think about what's going on at the property. You know, and that we're still right in the middle of a building program that's going on. The building is going up. If you haven't been by out there, the roof is going on. You know, and I'm thinking about, we're still thinking about paying for it and the money coming in and how we raise more and working into the budget. And we, we are thinking about, we feel confident God is moving us in this direction. But I keep wrestling with, you know, using all legitimate means at our disposal. He accepted government backing and protection, right, for his trip and for his resources. You know, he used his position and whatever else he could muster to get, you know, favor for the work of God and to advance it. He actively pursues what he needs. I've wrestled with this. I'm like, can we get any grants? Are there any grants available that will help us so we can move into building the the permanent sanctuary, which I would love to do, you know, next? And how do we do this? I thought about, I go crazy thinking, you know, he asked for the moon, King Artaxerxes. I'm like, would Bill Gates, Bill Gates could probably what he makes in 10 minutes pay for the whole thing you know does Bill Gates give to churches I wonder I don't know who should we ask like who you know you pray to the God of heaven and say he is he has prepped himself and asking God to provide God does God does and so will you join with me asking praying and seeking but also asking like him being prepared as God opens the door to be the answer to your own prayer which Nehemiah is in so many ways. So Melville says, we'll start with the first one. One commentator said, prayer without means and means without prayer, they're equally presumptuous. Presumptuous, right? Duty lies in employing both and keeping them both in their right place. Right? Prayer, you know, just praying and saying, hope somebody handles that. You know, you know he says it's equally as wrong as you know, stepping up and doing that, but not having prayed. You know, but these things, how they belong together, our prayer and our action. You know, Melville says he was not one of those who substituted prayer for endeavor or action, though he would not make an endeavor or may do a thing until he had prayed and prepared himself. We don't pray and do nothing, and we don't work and press ahead without prayer. We see in Nehemiah a man who was not only passionate and prayerful about the things of God, but actively pursued them. A man willing to be used by God. It's a phrase that keeps coming to me as you read some of these things. We have such a great God. A God who is at work all the time. right? A God who is carrying on to completion the good work that He began in us. A God who says, I'm going to build my church and my kingdom and the gates of hell won't stand against it. A God who says, my purposes will be accomplished. Right, who says, I've made you my ambassadors. You know, as though God is making His appeal through us. We have this God that is... How do we... 
make ourselves men and women to be willing to be used. And I think it begins with being willing to forsake our comfort and to take risks and pay some prices. I'm not sure exactly what it looks like. I know that in the months ahead, we had a strategic planning meeting on Thursday night, or tactical planning meeting on Thursday night, um, talking about the next year and what this is going to look like. And what has to happen, the, the, the roof is going on. on May, they say May 19th, they're going to hand us a certificate of occupancy to move in. And all that has to happen before we take that certificate and move in. You know, as we reach out, how are we going to reach out to the community and tell them that we're there? How are we going to begin that kind of ministry and that kind of a building awareness and trying to become a presence and a part of that community and to invite them in, to invite those who don't have a church or haven't been in a church and to reach out and to begin to do ministry. How are we going to, in a sense, advertise ourselves and market ourselves? And what if we do? See, we're asking for the moon. We were talking that night, praying and believing that God is going to grow our church, that we're going to move out there and people in the neighborhood are going to check us out. They say like 10,000 people drive by down Hickson Pike on that piece of road every day. Something like that. Praying. I don't know what God is going to do, but we're praying that God does. An amazing thing is we move out there and, and the next 50 years and we have the property and we have the plans for an, a new sanctuary and we, we have all this and like Him, we are asking God, if this is Your direction, open the floodgates of heaven and do marvelous things in our eyes. And are we ready for it? And that was the question that started coming out. Well, what if all those people come in and we have enough small group leaders? I don't know. Uh, we got a lot of people who've led small groups that haven't in a while. Maybe, maybe they'd be willing to lead a small group next year so, we, so that we can have more small groups and, and accommodate that growth. Do we have enough Sunday school teachers? Do we, have enough, do we have enough of everything? You know, people to volunteer and to do what needs to be done. We probably have to move some more chairs over there um, that we're going to share the fellowship hall and the sanctuary. We're gonna, we're gonna, we might need a chair moving team. You know, we might meet, I don't even know all that we're going to, but we are working and planning and praying and acting with the hopes and the prayers that God is going to do something. And part of me is here this morning as I'm reading this and I see Nehemiah tuning his heart to be willing to risk and to pay a price and to step forward and say, here am I, send me. Um, I have tuned my heart that when opportunity opened, he threw caution to the wind and he said, I'll do it. And I'm asking you to pray and to prepare your heart, to tune your heart. And there are going to be opportunities, and we're going to probably, we're going to ask for this, and a week later we're going to ask for that, and a month later we're going to, we're going to need some of these, and we're going to, you know, we're going to plan and we're going to pray, and asking you to be the church, to pray and to prepare, to pray with us about what God will do and how He will use us, and then to pray how you might be the answer to our own prayers and how we're going to make that work. If a hundred people show up, a hundred new people walk in the door in our second week of worship out there. And what are we going to do to accommodate them, to welcome them, to host them, to get them connected, to plug them into discipleship? Let me just close with a word about the hand of God. Right As he closes out, and he says in verse 8, And the king granted me what I asked for. the good hand of God was on me. Right? King Artaxerxes was all provided. The floodgates of heaven were opened. 
And he was granted time, he was granted papers of transport, he was granted all the resources, he was granted everything that he needed. Why? Because the good hand of his God was upon him. And I believe that one of the ways and the reasons that that hand was so manifested was because he was praying and tuning his heart and willing to step forward. And so we heard last week as part of our global outreach to be a fellow worker with God. What an amazing, amazing thing to say. That I've linked arm as a fellow worker with God in His kingdom. And I believe that the good hand of God is upon us as we are praying and being willing to be used by God. Will you pray those prayers with us? I'm fascinated that Nehemiah remembers as he's writing this account. And he remembers and he relates his arrow prayer. And it fascinates me that in the whole scope of the story, he remembers to say, you know, and then the king asked me, and I asked him for all this stuff, and he gave it to me, but he pauses and he adds, and I prayed to the God of heaven. And I asked. Because I think that is at the center of the whole story. It is an important piece. It's not an aside. And in some ways, I think it reveals the very heart of everything. He rejected self-dependence. He rejected self-reliance. He lived in conscious, habitual dependence on his God to do it. And he asked for it. And in the moment, he sought it of an inward cry of the heart to God. And God did it. Octavius Winslow says, God is near at hand when you do approach Him in prayer. Oh, What a comforting truth. A God at hand to hear the softest breath of prayer. To listen to every confession of sin. To hear every cry of our need. Every utterance of our sorrow. Every wail of our woe. Every appeal for counsel, strength, support. Arise my soul. And give yourself to this prayer. For God is near to hear and to answer you. Arise souls and pray father in heaven we thank you for your word that is living and true we thank you that you are a god who is near and that your hand is upon us oh father teach us to tune our hearts to walk in such habitual conscious moment by moment awareness of your presence Awareness of our need for You. Aware that we can do nothing apart from You. Aware that if You do not build Your house, we are laboring in vain. Come. Lover of our souls. That our souls may arise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.